if you're listening to the radio, if you're on the news, or your television, or, or your, I don't know if you're reading newspapers, I don't, or social media, doesn't it depress you? Doesn't it just depress you? Everything's doom and gloom and sadness and sorrow and lies and deceit and all sorts of stuff going on. It's just ridiculous what's happening. And God's word is truth. And so when we want to know the truth, we turn to the scriptures. When we want to know absolute truth, we turn to the word of God. Tonight and God willing, next week, we're not going to do a big long or long study as we did last week. We're going to try and keep it and maybe do some next week and maybe a third week. We'll see. I don't know. And we want to look at a study uh, of the book or the epistle of Jude. So we're studying the epistle of Jude. Will you turn with me to Jude? And if you don't know where that is, it's the little epistle just before the book of Revelation. I'll just let you get it. Just one chapter in Jude. It's divided into 25 verses for us. Of course, the verses are not in the original text. There are no verses there, but it's handy to have those so we can look up a scripture. And we have Jude. We're going to look at the background tonight, and we're going to look and see what God shows us out of it. We're going to read just the first three verses. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and hath preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. To the saints. Father, take your word and help us and strengthen us. Lord, in this dark and dreadful day when the enemy tries his worst, Lord, and we see, Lord, men of wicked hands and elitism, Lord, we see it around the world and in our nation. And so, Father, we pray that you would, Lord, cause your, your children to be strengthened in their innermost being tonight. And you'd bless each and every one of us with so much doom and gloom, Lord, everywhere we look and every side. We thank you. There's light, there's life, and truth found in your word. So, Father, glorify your Son in this place tonight. We thank you for so many coming out to a Bible study. And we pray, Lord, you'll bless them. And as our faces differ, so do our needs. Lord, would you meet every single need. You alone are able, for you alone are God. So glorify your son. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. This little epistle of Jude, some 25 verses. And when we think of the darkness, whether we're reading or watching or listening to whatever today, notice the very opening of this. It's just about peace and love. It's about strengthening the brethren. It's about the brothers and sisters in Christ being told in the word of God that you are Christ's. And the idea of this epistle, in fact, in Moffat's translation, uh, you'd find that this is called, and by others, but it's called a fiery cross to rouse the church. 
That's what it's, uh, that's the idea of the little epistle of Jude. It's a fiery cross to rouse the church. I think we need a fiery cross to arouse the church in this day and hour. There's even among Christians are looking at other Christians and they're causing division among us. And, you know, it shouldn't be so and it shouldn't be allowed, but Christians are turning on Christians and some say this and some say that. And it's a horrible and a terrible thing for those who are said to be the body of Christ to be one against another. There's a fence on every side. There's a fence on the left hand and a fence on the right hand. And it shouldn't be so, brothers and sisters. While we have a fence, let us rem- remind ourselves that we are dead to self, that Christ lives in us. So this is a fiery cross to rouse the church. It's believed at this time this little epistle was written because of the persecution on the church. Now listen, the church, as in the West, anyhow, the church isn't really under persecution. If you want to see persecution, go somewhere like China. You want to go to persecution, go somewhere like even South America's. And you'll see those uh, who are really persecuted in the Middle East. But it's coming. And it'll increase and it'll increase. First of all, what happens is they take away our civil and religious liberties. Bit by bit, step by step. And the church are like frogs. You know how you boil a frog? Slowly. Put it in a pot of cold water and turn the heat on low, gradually turning it up. And the frog doesn't realize it, that it's being cooked alive and it's boiled. And that's what's happening. And you'll find that's what will happen in the church of Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ. They're slowly like frogs boiling us. Bit by bit by bit. It can be difficult because we have to look at, say, well, at what point do we, do we give up our religious liberties? And what point are we seen to be witnessing to the unsaved? And where does our witness leave? And it's a, a fine dividing line. And the only way we can be sure of where we're walking and what it is that we should do is the guidance through the scriptures. It has to be, give me the scripture and we can walk in it. No matter what happens. Give me the word of God. Notice this fiery cross to rouse the church wasn't a letter to expound the faith here. You read Paul's about expounding the faith. You read Paul's epistles. It's about his letter to the to the church and how the, the body of Christ gathering together and how they would meet on the Lord's Day, break bread. Paul then gives us, if you want, an exposition on breaking of bread. And he tells us how to do that. How to be built up in the faith. He encourages on, us on in that. But this isn't to expound the faith, but rally, pardon me, rather, it is to rally the church in defense of the faith. It's to rally the church, God's blood-washed elect, in defense of the faith. So this little epistle, I'm sure, uh, it's been neglected in many ways. There's some wonderful gems in it. It tells us in this about those who were saved and those who were lost. It tells us about Israel and Egypt. It, it, it goes on to tell us about the angels in heaven that uh, lost their first estate and now in our chains of darkness. It, it goes on to tell us of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the destruction of it and the filthy dreamers they're called. Even their mindsets were, were putrefied every day. 
And it's not the way it is today. Mindsets are putrid every day. He defiled the flesh, verse 8, and despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. So Jude has given us something here to really get our teeth into. And he's telling the church, look, this is the world you're living in. And this is the world you and I are living in, brothers and sisters, at this time. And this is the increasingly wickedness of the world. It then tells us about Michael the archangel arguing over the body of Moses. When you read these things, where else do you find this? So it's a, it's a precious gem because what he's doing, he's not saying it's about the faith, the faith, the faith. Let me expound your faith. But it's rather he's saying, I'm rallying you to the defense of the faith. To the defense of the faith. The Lord Jesus asked, will he find faith when he returns to the earth? And I said not so long ago, of course he'll find faith. Find all manner of faith. But will he find faith in him? The faith once delivered unto the saints. And as we go through, we get a picture of the type of people of, that are unsaved in the world that are, listen, we're not, we're not slow to know. I've been preaching this for years and I've got some stick, as you know, for many years of being unwanted and kicked out and everything over these things. From the elitism of Europe to the New World Order to a one world government, and I've done it for years and years and years. And you can see all of this happening and coming to pass here. Talks of Enoch, tells us about him, and we read very little of, of Enoch. But then it's brought out here in verse 14 Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied of these things saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. And do you know, it doesn't say that in the book of Genesis about Enoch. Where does it say it? There's a, there's an, there's a, a book that we don't class as uh, inspired, but this comes from the actual book of Enoch. Now, if you've ever read the book of Enoch, it's a crazy book. No wonder it's not believed to be inspired. There's some crazy stuff in it. But even Jude says here, this is what Enoch said. He walked with God. He had a testimony that he pleased God. He knew God. And he says, the Lord's going to return. And this is the wickedness of the land. This is the wickedness of the ideologies. This is the wickedness of the people. They're going to be like these. Think of Egypt and their, their pyramids. And think of Egypt and their Osiris and their all-seeing eyes. And we think of that. And God destroyed that in a, in a night. In a passing through of an evening. And we think of others like you know, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see it now rising up in generations, full generations. Full generations, not who may not be only in the practice of these things, but are also, uh, there are those who don't practice them, but are actually supporting them. And it's being accepted more than the word of God is accepted. Now good has become evil and evil has become good. And we can see the rise of it. And this is what happens when God has destroyed all of this. And so Enoch tells us that the Lord will return. And he will look at verse 15 to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds 
which have, they have ungodly committed, and of their hard speeches, which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Notice ungodly, 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 ungodly. He keeps just bringing it up how ungodly this world is, how ungodly this age is, and how ungodly the people are. And in, in, in distinction of what God's people should be, but rather instead, in Jude's time, they're under persecution, they're under the problems, but in Jude's time, it's now like our time. It's now like our time. You know, this has been a, a little epistle that it, when you talk to most people about it, that they, they could maybe tell you a little line of it or a verse of it, but not too many really delve into it because by the time they get through the New Testament and they get to the third epistle of John, they want to skip over that and read across it as quick as they can to rush into the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ because that's where all the nitty-gritty stuff is. That's where all the, 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 the wonderful stuff is, as it were. And really, the, the epistle of Jude is magnificent. It's magnificent. So it's a difficult letter in parts, and it's a neglected letter. And this is a letter... Notice of the word I'm going to use, urgency. So what Jude is saying here, there's an urgency. And that urgency, we may look at it a little, maybe next week, or we'll see how we get on. But it's in verse 5, and you may read it and not realize it. This is what he says. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. See the word, I will therefore... It's written in the context of an urgency. Jude is writing this with fire in it to say, listen, no messing about, it's time. It's time, believer. With the same faith in Christ alone, it's time to be counted. It's time to stand up and stand forth. Unfortunately, we find many Christians have turned into keyboard warriors and hiding themselves at home. And that's true, isn't it? Listen, brother, sister, don't allow, don't allow your thoughts and what's going on in this nation, what's going on in this time, don't allow your thoughts to go to be determined by keyboard warriors on Facebook or wherever else. Because you'll get a million different opinions. Let your thoughts be determined by the word of God. That's your stay. That's your stronghold. So here we find there's an urgency. And and Jude did much more for the church. This is what a lot of scholars have said. Jude did much more for the church by writing this little urgent letter than he would have done by leaving a long treatise on the faith. That's what a lot of scholars think on this little 25 verses of Jude. Now, let's do a bit of the background of Jude, shall we? Jude's name in the Greek is Judas. Judas. And Jude was the brother of James. James was the superintendent, if we can call it that. Some say bishop, but superintendent of the, the church in Jerusalem. So this is the superintendent's brother that's speaking here. And he's also named among the brethren, the brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look uh, somewhere. Let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. 
let your eye run down. verse 53. Matthew 13 verse 53 And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works. Notice where does he get this from? His words were different than all the other words. No, no, neither man or never a man spake like this man. And these mighty miracles, okay, these mighty works. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother, is not his mother Mary and his brethren, note, and his brethren James and Joses and Simon and Judas? And the sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, notice, save in his own country. And note this again, and in his own house. And he did not many works there because of their unbelief. So notice here, we have four brethren. Now, we're going to look slightly more deeper into this because the Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. So he's the eldest the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, Mary had no other children. The perpetual virginity of Mary. Hence, Mary is sinless, Mary is pure, and Mary can be prayed to, and hence Mary, even to some, is almost in the Godhead. And that's the truth. In fact, some are, have been lobbying uh, the, 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 the Pope and the papacy throughout the years to place Mary in the Godhead through the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, she had no other children, and the word brethren here gives the idea of cousins. That's what pe- people will say. But notice what it says here. It says, Is not this, verse 55, pardon me, is not this the carpenter's son? So they're thinking, is this Joseph's son? Of course we know he was born of the Holy Spirit, the power of the highest, overshadowed Mary, and he was born of God. Now, by the way, carpenter's son, we always hear of Jesus was a carpenter making furniture and all that sort of stuff. You don't read that anywhere in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture tells you. I'll tell you, Joseph was a carpenter, and the idea where it comes from is it's more than likely that he worked in the carpenter's shop because of his parental guardian, if you want, or his stepfather, Joseph, was one. So he would have taken on that role. But that supposition, we don't know that. We don't know that. But notice this. Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joses and Simon and Judas, and the sisters? So here's four and at least two. Notice the language that's being said here. And the sisters, are they not all with us? So we, so it's not sister, but sister. So it's at least two, but are they not all? Could be more. Could be three. Could be four. We don't know. Four brethren, at least two sisters. There's six. Jesus was seventh. He was the firstborn of the family. Now I notice this. And they were offended at him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not 
without honour, save in his own country and in his own house. And in his own house. If you want to read another reference for that, you jot down Mark chapter 6 and you'll find it there. So Jude, in Jude's little epistle, and we're going to look further into this in a moment. Jude in his little epistle, he calls himself Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Here, he seems to distance himself from being called an apostle. It seems here that Jude's taken the step of humility where many Christians don't want to take. Well, if I'm not doing that, or if I'm not there, then I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to be that, and I'm not going to go, and I'm not. And this is the step of humility Jude's taken here. And he's, he's stepping away from being called an apostle. Look at verses 17 and verse 18, please, of the little epistle of Jude. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking of other apostles. Now, notice he isn't adding himself here how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Notice right in this day, the apostles, he says, how they told you. And it's as though he's nearly distancing himself. He is an apostle, but he's taken a backward seat, if you want, for another word. So can you see how he's really distancing himself? Even though he's the brother of James, the superintendent in Jerusalem, but even though he's the the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no name-dropping here except to glorify his name. Notice as well here, John chapter 7, please. John chapter 7. Just let your eye run down. The verse 4. For there's no man that doeth anything in secret and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Notice verse 5. For neither did his brethren believe him. So Jesus' brethren, his brothers, didn't believe him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. So notice here, his brethren didn't believe him, and then Jesus speaks about the world. They don't believe me, and you don't believe me. So, jot down, instead of running to it now, Micah chapter 7 and verse 6. And you'll find Micah the prophet says this in the Old Testament. For the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Notice a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Do you see that? 
It hasn't really changed much, sure it hasn't. Your family can be the worst. Close friends can be the worst. So, go with me to Luke chapter 8, please. We're just building a case tonight and see where God leads us. Luke chapter 8. So let your eye, the Lord Jesus is giving the parable of the sower. You know, some fell by the wayside, some fell upon a rock, and some among thorns, and other fell in good ground. Now, you, you read the chapter when you go home as you run into verse 15. Verse 15 of Luke chapter 8. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. Now, note that. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, cover it with a vessel, or put it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Now, I know, take heed, therefore, how you hear. Notice he doesn't say here, take heed now what you hear. We should always be careful what we hear, but it's how we hear. How we hear is important because if we're children of God, we'll see this fell on the good ground. How we hear can bring sanctification. How we hear can bring a, a help to us. How we hear can encourage us. And how we hear can instruct us. Notice what he says. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. Let me just get it. For whoso hath to him shall be given... And whoso hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him, notice this now, then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press. There was too many people around him and his mother comes with his brethren. Now, if if these aren't his brothers, as through Mary, if these aren't his brothers, as in those of his own house, if these aren't his brothers and their cousins or relatives, they're very close, aren't they, to Mary to come with him or to him with her all the time. Notice this. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he said and answered unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. So we have to ask them, was the Lord Jesus here, was he being, was he being a, a, a derogatory of his mother and of his brother's answers? No. Sounds like it, but he wasn't. The Lord Jesus wasn't dismissing Mary or his family, but he's emphasizing the importance of the preeminence of the word of God in the believer's life over flesh and family issues. So, for example, we have maybe a family member and they're... I remember when I first got saved and I was... You know, you're full of beans and buttermilk and you're all ready to go in this newfound faith and you haven't a clue what to do or what's happening. And I remember I walked in and I didn't realize my mom was dying of a tumor. We thought she had a sore stomach. And she's in bed and walked in and says, Mom, I got saved. And she went, oh, great, son. Said to my dad, I got saved. He says, good, don't come preaching to me. 
and they all got saved. <laughs> and the idea of it was I had to walk according to that even though I came from a nominal, put it in brackets, Presbyterian Protestant household. None of us were saved. But when I got saved, it was a case of, they called me Kenneth. Our Kenneth has turned into one of those weirdos. That's the truth. The thought I had just went off my head. They were glad because I wasn't devastated with the drink and the drugs, or, well, they were hoping I wouldn't be that this would have helped me, but at the end of it, there was a case of don't come preaching to me. They thought I was mad. My brother one time stopped the car when I was in it, and he put the brakes on and pulled over to the side of the road, and he just says, I want, shred it into my face, he was driving, I just want my brother back. I used to say, I'm your brother. I want my brother back. The old brother back that used to go out drinking with me. I said, he's dead, I'm sorry. He's dead. Because the word of God has to take preeminence over even family. Faith in Christ has to take the preeminence over friends. And I I personally, I'm not judging anyone, but I personally do not understand when a man or woman gets saved and their friends that they go out with are ungodly and worldly. I don't get that. I don't know what fellowship you have one with another for light doesn't have fellowship with darkness. For me personally, I just can't get it. can't understand it. And Christ was saying here, yeah, they're off the flesh, but the Spirit overtakes, the Word overtakes. It is the Spirit and the Word that counts over the flesh. He wasn't being derogatory, and he wasn't dismissing him. So what is this debunking? Is debunking the perpetual virginity of Mary. So just before we go a little further for a few minutes, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Lord Jesus Christ has died. Paul is writing again to tell us of the glorious resurrection to look forward to. But he's telling us of what happened at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. And let your eye run down, please. Verse 5. And that he, the Lord Jesus, was seen of Cephas, or Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. Now, this is brethren in the faith he's talking about, not Jesus' brethren, as in his brothers. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep or have died. Notice, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. James here is the half-brother of, brother of our Lord, the brother of Jude, who we're reading tonight. And this James did not believe until he seen the resurrected Christ. Even the cross. His, James, his brother, his older brother, the Lord Jesus, died on the cross, shed his blood, and James seen his older brother die. Heard of his older brother's demise. Into the grave, into the tomb. And now at the resurrection, it's here, he shows himself to James. Why? That James' brother would believe in him. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. So you can see even now this James goes on 
to be the superintendent. How the faith was encouraged at the resurrection of his brother. That is his brother through Mary. And then, of course, Paul says, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul's, of course, forgiven here off that, but it still carries in him. Shame of the sin. I'm ashamed of my past. Some people aren't. I don't understand Christians who aren't ashamed of where Christ has brought them from, but rather relish on it. Here's another thing just before we move on. Paul says he was one as one born out of due time. You underline that. And I don't mean to be crude, but I'm just going to give you the meaning of that. Gives the idea of a stillborn or a miscarriage. Paul says, they they look at me as if I'm like a miscarriage. I wasn't an apostle of the Lamb following the, the living Christ in the flesh, but rather I was persecuting the church of God until the risen Christ. Remember the road to Damascus? Acts chapter 9, you read his testimony. The, the risen Christ met me on that road. So Paul is saying, they look at me as if, you know, this guy who persecuted the church. Now, most people look at me and say, you're like someone who is as a, a, an afterbirth even. You're a miscarriage. Like a stillborn. You're born late. One born out of due time. You weren't born right time, Paul. But Paul is saying, Christ met me. Christ saved me. And Christ made me an apostle. So that's the difference between the apostles of the Lamb are those who walked with Jesus before Calvary. And the apostles of the risen Lord are those whom he made apostles after his ascension to heaven and the Holy Spirit came. Okay? So, here we find first one of the little epistle of Jude. We'll do one more point and we'll stop it and we'll get down to a time of prayer and we'll do a bit more. I told you, I don't want to do too long tonight. I've done a good long study last week. I've plenty here. I just don't want to... I want to give us plenty of time to pray. First one. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. See the word servant? You can underline that there. And you can write the word doulos. Doulos, it's D-O-U-L-O-S for the English rendering. So while we're here then, turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21. And you can see even in the New Covenant how all these, all these are related to Israel's history. Everything Jude's speaking of. Exodus 21 and verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. But if he came in by himself... He shall go out by himself, and if he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she hath borne him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. 
And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door and unto the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Now, this is the idea of the word doulos for James' servant. Paul writes it, Paul the servant of Jesus Christ and so on. And the idea of this was, notice it was an Hebrew slave. A Hebrew slave. It wasn't a foreign slave. It was a Hebrew slave. So what happened was some of them got into difficulty maybe and they owed them and they couldn't repay. Or maybe there was damage done and they couldn't fix it. So what they did was they gave themselves like an indentured slavery. Gave themselves to serve. And so as you read here, they served for six years and the seventh year was their jubilee, their first jubilee. And then you have seven, seven, 49, 50 was the big jubilee year. So what you had was, after seven years, or six years, in the seventh year, they would go out, they would go out free. But if he had a wife with him and they went in, then him and his, he and his wife would come out. But if he was there, and he was a servant, or this, what's known as a, a bond slave, and the master who he's paying back to, see the master's bought him, so he's buying the debt. Can you see how, how debt usury is today in the earth as well? Do you know what happens here? Do you ever wonder when they say, oh, the UK's now two trillion pounds worth of debt? Who to? Do you ever wonder? Who to? Do you ever hear of the banking fraternity, the, the fraternities and all of their... That's who to. The Bilderbergers and the Rothschilds and all that sort of... The Goldman Sachs and all those others. That's who they're... And do you know what countries do? Some of them actually buy debt buy debt so that they can trade with other countries. And they are, they're richer, so they'll buy the debt. And then what they'll do is they give the debt back again if the people can't trade with them the same. It's, 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 a, it's a, a terrible way for the world to be. But here the Lord says, you'll have it for six years, you'll release this man or woman, man and woman. But if you give him the wife, he's free to go, but she isn't. So what if they have children? They're not free to go. And so what he done was, if the, the man, the Hebrew man, wanted to go free, he would say, right, I'm, I'm away. He's either going to leave his wife and children, or he's going to say, I love my master. Verse 5, look at it. And if the servant shall, notice, plainly say, this is unequivocally say without being harangued at it. Plainly say, if he can plainly say, I love my master. Notice first. Notice first is the master, the love for the master. He didn't say, I love my children, my wife, and my master. He loved my, I love my master, my wife, and my children. And that's the order for families under Christ. My master, my wife, my children, and then church. If you want to call it that. Not church away before everything else even. It's my master, my wife, my children. And if a husband isn't honoring his wife, then he's dishonoring Christ. Brother, if he's not honoring his wife, he's dishonoring Christ because Christ is his head. And children, notice here, I love my master. And what does he do? He takes him to the judges. 
He takes them to the doorpost. That would have been to the city, uh, if you want, like the town hall. He takes an awl, which is a big, big, big nail, and he takes his ear and he blatters it to the doorpost. He nails him to the doorpost through his ear. Bores it through and nails him to the doorpost. And what that is, is that's showing that he's a free man, because when the ears, obviously it's going to be a big thick nail, that's an awl. It's not just a little one we would get. It's not like you get an ear piece and your ear can close over here. This is a hole through the ear. And everywhere that Hebrew servant went meant he was free. He could walk, he could travel, he could go to different cities and different towns. He'd go anywhere he wanted. But he always knew the way home again. And what it was, anybody seen the all, he couldn't be taken for slavery again. He couldn't be taken for his service again. Because everybody seen and says, he has a master. He's marked out that he has a master. Okay? Go to Jude's epistle. If you want to read another, uh, read that again, go to Deuteronomy 15 and 17. You'll read it there again. So they were known as a, a, a bond slave servant or a love slave, a love servant. So they're there because they love their master first, then the wife, then the children. Notice here, Jude, a servant. First off, first verse, first line, I'm a love slave of Jesus Christ. It's not mighty. Paul writes these things too. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Didn't say he's a servant of James in the church. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. I love him first. So brother, sister, do you love him? Do you love him? That's the most important thing. Do you love him? If you love him, brother, you love your wife. Vice versa, sister. You love your children. Notice here, you're the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. See the word sanctified here. The word sanctified by God the Father. There's a, a bit of a debate on the actual Greek text here. Some say the word sanctified is hagazio, which means one who is holy because he's in Christ and now set apart to walk and serve him. It can give the idea to purify, to consecrate, to make holy. But others say the word actually can also be uh, translated as agapeo. That's where we get the word agape love. Agape love is termed like this. That's the best, best way I've ever heard it termed. I've never, I, I learned it so as we never forget it because it blessed my heart. So every time I think of it, I think of my heavenly father's love th- shown through his son, given by the spirit to me. So it means, it, this is the best, you ready? That I know anyhow. It gives the idea of a love that is called out of one's heart according to the preciousness of the object that is loved. A love that is called out of one's heart because of the preciousness of the object that is loved. Hence, when we read this, he sanctifies us, purifies us, he makes us holy and sets us apart to serve him in love because 
We are the ones who are so precious to him. So the one who is precious to him has been saved by grace or under the blood, being by the way of the cross. You ready? So it gives the idea that his love from eternity, his electing love came. Christ came and displayed, manifest that love on the cross and was given through the word and the spirit when he ascended the Holy Spirit, when he came down, it was given through the word and the spirit that arrived to our ears, to our hearts. We were saved. And now we are, as the Ephesian epistle Paul tells us, we are before him in love. Brother, you, sister, you, believe it or not, and I don't know why for me, but I call the love out of the Father's heart. So do you. Because you're precious. He thought that much of you. He gave heaven's best. He gave his only begotten, beloved son. It's a love that is called out of the heart according to a preciousness of the object that is love. Now the word here, sanctified, to them that are sanctified, right on it, present tense. Present tense. It gives the idea that it's a, a, a past act, a past act, having present and what I'm looking for. Permanent results. A past act having present and permanent results. That's why, see when someone's really born again, Jesus doesn't save you and say, off you go and try your best. And sure, if you don't make it well, you'll go to hell. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You're sealed. The electing love found you in Christ. His blood paid your debt. The Hebrew slave that went free. The Hebrew slave who loves him for love with the, the all, as it were, the, that's marked out that he has a master. That's you, brother. That's you, sister. That's who we are here. So we are marked out by him, and he loves us. We are before him in love. It's a past act of the cross. It has present and permanent results. Preserved in Jesus Christ. Saying this and we'll get down to prayer. Preserved in Jesus Christ. The little word preserved there is the word tarot. Uh, tarot means T-E-R-E-O for an English rendering. It means to guard, to hold firmly, it means to watch, to keep. And Judah's using what's known as a perfect participle here. And what it gives the idea of is like this is something that is done, as we would say, done and dusted. And it's, it's something that's done and dusted and will not change. I, I feel for people because some people think they're, they're saved and if they have... You know, if they, by the time you get out of bed and eat their cornflakes in the morning and they've, they've thought wrong or they've acted wrong or whatever, that they're no longer saved anymore. 
It's time to get to the altar before I get cast into hell. Brothers and sisters, our God doesn't do that. He saves us and he keeps us and he seals us. And if we're saved and kept and sealed and in love before him, and if we love him, then we will walk in holiness and righteousness with him. Here, preserve means to hold firmly, to watch, to keep. I'll read this in my close. This is what I've written. The saints have been kept by God the Father and are being kept until this present moment. They are the objects of his watchful care. The Father is keeping us so that we might continue to be forever the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father is watching us to keep us as the possession for his Son. Do you think the Father's going to give his Son? Do you think he's going to watch him in agony, bleeding and dying? Do you think he's going to, as it were, turn his face from him with your sin on him and my sin on him? Do you think he's going to do all of that and send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God? Do you think he's going to do that to seal us for to turn around and say, you know what, act have failed me. Does that not show you, are we not weakening in our own minds the power of God and are we not weakening the power of the blood? Are we not saying, well, the, the sacrifice of Christ isn't enough and God mustn't love me anymore because I'm not feeling up to it today. See, you're saved not by your feelings. And you're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Listen, see if I was saved every time I felt like I was saved and if I wasn't saved every time I felt like I wasn't saved, I'd be saved one minute and not saved the next. I'd be saved one day all day and the next day I'd be lost all day. Whenever I'm sick or you're not feeling well and you're lying down and you have a busting headache, do you feel really, uh, I'm so spiritual about this? You are not indeed. You're lying with your toes pointing up so you are even on your back, aren't you? Oh, I feel rotten. This is terrible. Maybe you're, you know, you're, you're sick and ill and, you know, you're just, you're like a bird with a sore head. And you say, do you think Jesus is, you know what? You're not saved anymore. That's you. You're out. Come on, brothers and sisters. He came all the way from glory and paid our debt and gave his life. He went to the grave for us and he rose the third day victorious and triumphant. He's saying to heaven, he's praying for me and I'm going to be lost. Brothers and sisters, he saves me and he keeps me. And he saves you and he keeps you. More next week, God willing. Lord bless you.